an estimated 260 million children and youth are not able to attend school, and another 600 million cannot reach minimum proficiency levels in reading and mathematics while in school. We all know this is a global crisis to be solved. The question now is, how can we do it? Hello and welcome to Beyond Business with Wärtsilä, a podcast series that goes above the realms of strategy and operations and seeks to find solutions to our global problems. I'm your host Atte Palomäki and on a regular basis I'll be talking to experts in their field about how we can work together to make a true difference. The idea behind each episode is to look beyond the scope of profit and margins and to really discover how businesses, thought leaders and experts can rally together and use their experience, intelligence, forethought and honesty to facilitate true and tangible change. Today we will discuss access to education, which should be a basic human right, yet it is one of the biggest challenges for humanity. And joining me today to dissect the issue are Samson Kofi Adote, a grassroots education advocate, a scholar at the Cape Town-based Bertha Center for Social Innovation and Entrepreneurship, and a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Shapers community. And Peter Westerbakka, a serial entrepreneur and one of the principal advisors of the Ambitious Africa Education Project. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for joining us for this very important conversation. Thank you, Atte. Thank you, Atte. UNESCO's World Inequality Database on Education highlights wealth, gender, ethnicity and location as key factors that shape people's opportunities for education. Which component do you believe to yield the most influence and why would that be? Peter, maybe you go first. Yeah, I think that if you look at Finland as a starting point and and we're known for having uh, what is probably one of the best, if not the best educational systems on the planet. And I think uh, location is uh, very, very key uh, when we talk about education. You should have, uh, you know, the school like next door and you can walk or ride your bike or or something like that. So uh, I think location is is super important. Uh, Then... uh, Of course, you can look at uh, wealth and, you know, like how much are you investing into education and all that. But I think that, uh, again, no matter how much you invest, if you are not doing the right thing, uh, you're not going to get very good results. So, I mean, you could build, you know, like a few elite uh, schools and you educate, you know, like a few people and uh, then... uh, you know, uh, you could say that, hey, we have some very good schools. But I think that uh, the answer is a bit more complex that you can say that it's about wealth or it's about location. But I think that we have to have as a starting point that we need to educate not just a few, but all. And Samson, how about the African perspectives? What factors really matter there? To a very large extent, I agree with Peter, largely because it's a very complex situation and it's also contextual. If you come to the African continent as an example, we've seen even in recent times people being uh, sort of marginalized as a result of, of the agenda. In the past, I would say in the early 90s, you wouldn't find as many women going into schools to pursue certain courses or careers within the education system. But over the years, in recent times, we've seen a gradual shift and a lot of um women empowerment, or or I would say, you know, um, gender affirmative actions by certain uh, national governments and and, and certain regional bodies around encouraging more women um, and girls in school. The other thing that also distinguishes or sort of sets certain schools apart or schools apart uh, often is is the wealth, uh, the issue about wealth. Now, schools in in, in urban hyper cities, you know, modern cities are bound to have more access 
to infrastructure as compared to schools in out-of-reach areas and out-of-reach locations. So, for instance, very rural and remote areas. In terms of ethnicity, that's not really a big deal when you come to Africa. But to some extent, you know, support towards schools can also be influenced to some extent by the existence of traditional authority or the power that being from a specific ethnic group or whatsoever it is. So there are a number of biases that exist. And also these biases sort of reinforces some of the inequalities that exist within the education sector. However, if you ask me which of these factors yields the most influence, I would say that it's a very complex thing and none of these factors are mutually exclusive. Let's zoom into the sub-Saharan region of Africa, which has the highest rates of education exclusion. Nearly one-fifth of the children between 6 and 11 and one-third of the youth between 12 and 14 are out of school. So these are extremely disturbing statistics. Could you elaborate a bit on the scale of the problem there and uh, the impact of lacking access to education? As it stands, if you look at the statistics from UNESCO, uh, we have more than 250 young people being out of school. Um, And this is quite staggering because if you look at the youth bulge we're currently experiencing on the continent of Africa, our youth present a unique opportunity and there's a need for us to really harness that demographic, you know, for the future of Africa, to build the Africa we want, to be a frontier in the digital economy amongst many things. Now, when you talk about the issue of access, we have you know, in terms of access, there are multiple layers, right? So you talk about access in terms of um, technology and infrastructure. You talk about access in terms of teachers. You talk about access in terms of pedagogy and 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 textbooks and many other things. Now, the access levels across board, you know, when you take on a regional basis, so that sub-Saharan Africa, you would see that there's a lot of room for improvement. As a matter of fact, the cost of education in some places is unknown because it's hard to really quantify how much it costs to train one person per semester or one person per term um, in some countries. Now, you know, we have middle-income countries, we have least developed countries, and these categories, you know, in terms of how much they spend on investment in education differs. Certainly, according to the GDPs that, you know, each country sort of finds itself within. So I would say that the issue of access is quite a big problem, and it is one that needs a sort of a systemic approach in addressing it, because even as COVID-19 happened, we realized that, you know, more than 89% of the learners in sub-Saharan Africa did not have access to household computers, and 82% lacked internet access. So what that meant is whilst the schools had shut down, there was no learning taking place. Nobody could go to school. Nobody could have any, you know, go on a computer and say, I'm taking classes on Zoom or Teams or whatsoever it is. So it's quite a, a big concern and a big challenge that needs to be addressed. Going back to gender equality and girls being left out. While the situation may have improved somewhat, it is still a massive problem in many regions. How can we truly turn the trend here? Yeah, I think it's a tough question. I think that we need to lead by example. And, and I think that, uh, again, uh, role models and, and uh, you know, really showing that 
it has a big impact on society. And I mean, it starts with education, educating again all and not just a few, and that all, of course, both genders. And I think that goes through all the way to working life and all of that, that we need to show that it's very important that we educate uh, again everybody. And uh, of course, showing the success then in working life, in society and all of that. And education is really the foundation for future success. And Samson? Yes. So what I have to add to what Peter has spoken about is we need to really understand what the barriers to access is for young girls, right? So currently, 30% of primary school age girls remain out of school. In terms of, if you look at the whole world, 87% of the countries in the world, and out of that 87%, 30% of primary school age girls remain out of school, right? Now, these young girls and many other vulnerable groups of children, you know, experience a number of challenges and barriers to access in education. We can talk about period poverty as an example, where, you know, 7 million girls in South Africa alone do not have access or cannot afford to buy sanitary pads. Now, a girl child who is in school and experiences period poverty will not find it comfortable to be in the classroom. Talk about the lack of proper sanitation within the schools, um, where there's no proper toilet, bathrooms for people to be able to use the toilet in a case where they need to go and a number of other barriers around transportation, the location of the school, and a number of other things. And I think, you know, within these challenges exists a very unique opportunity for us to really introduce interventions that speak to the barriers and addresses the barriers. And I believe that once those barriers have been addressed, you know, that is the starting point to really addressing the main issue of access when it comes to the gender female and also access on the overall to education and participation. The theme of digital was already mentioned earlier. If we look at it a bit closer, so in terms of access to education, now with so many countries becoming more and more digital and connected, how does the overall context to access change in this type of a world? So I think that if you look at the pandemic and, and what that has really taught us is that if you look at uh, developed countries, uh, you know, uh, we're able to uh, switch everybody online in a matter of days. You know, that happened here in Finland. And uh, I think that that showed us that it can be done and it can be done very rapidly. And also a great example that if I would have said, you know, before the pandemic that, hey, you know, like how difficult can it be? We can just, you know, put everybody online and it will take like a day or two. And of course, people have told me that, Peter, you're crazy. You have to understand that it's very complicated and, you know, like a day or two, you know, like uh, it's going to take, you know, much longer than that. But then when we were forced to do it, of course, we could because we had the infrastructure and the schools are connected and, you know, we have all of that. But then looking at emerging markets and looking at Africa, the situation uh, for the most part is is very, very different. And I think that this is something that, again, uh, if you don't have the access in the first place, how are you then going to, you know, switch everybody online when they don't have uh, access to computers or the network is not there or all of that. So, So I think that it also highlights the fact that we need to work a lot harder and provide that access. And I think that mobile is really where it's at. And of course, we all know that that's been uh, the thing really transforming uh, Africa. And if you look at, you know, like mobile payments, a lot of innovation that has happened first in Africa, you know, first than anywhere else. And I think that uh, there is a similar opportunity now when it comes to online education. I mean, online education is a lot more than, you know, like getting everybody on Zoom or, or something like that. But anyway, so I think that we are clearly far, far from where we need to be 
And then I would maybe just add that what works in a developed world, it's not like a blueprint necessarily then for, you know, like, let's take this to Africa and hope that it works. Samson, how does it look from your perspective? You know, Ate and Peter, you really touched on some of the core components of how to address the issue of access, um, especially around moving digital, right? One of the things I need to also highlight is, you know, when you talk about online education, it goes beyond access to the infrastructure, which is the computer and and internet or devices or whatsoever it is. Now, even as we speak today, the cost of data is so high in a large number of sub-Saharan African countries such that it makes it very hard for people to actually have access to internet, right? So that's the basis. Now, you take internet aside, let's talk about the cost of devices. It's too high for, for people in remote and rural areas to even be able to afford. In the first place, they can't actually afford to pay for tuition, you know, or to even buy school uniforms. Now, I'm not saying we haven't made progress. Of course, we have made a lot of progress. Now, if you compare the literacy rate in 1995 in Sub-Saharan Africa, which is 54.05% to the literacy rate as of 2020, which is 65.85%, you'd notice that there's been a huge jump in that regard. And what is currently happening is we often talk about online education and we forget that there's a need for us to actually even build the skill of digital literacy, you know, and digital skills. Now, to access the computer or the internet, you need to have the skill to turn on the computer, to go on Google, do your search and all of those things. For us to be able to get to the point of digital literacy, we first need to get to the point of literacy. And that's one of the challenges that needs to be addressed if we really want to move education online. I'm a very big advocate for a blended experience when it comes to online learning, because I feel like online learning, as we've seen over the past two years, has proven to be useful, but there's a lot of fatigue that comes from online education, which in any case, it's very hard to be able to measure or think about a way of recalibrating and personalizing the learning experience for individuals. Let's turn the attention a bit then to the content of the education. Peter, it's estimated by the United Nations that by 2030, more than a half of the world's population will not be able to participate in the workforce in a meaningful way. So how do we use education to ensure that the figures are better than this? So I think that that's the most important question here, because again, like who cares uh, if you have education, if it's not like useful. And I think that here uh, we need uh, more private public uh, collaboration. So again, uh, you know, the companies, the businesses typically know what kind of skills, what kind of uh, talent they need. So I think that that is an opportunity to, again, work together and and really understand uh, what is needed. But but this is also uh, something that is not um, limited to uh, emerging markets that we have this mismatch. I think that this is like a global problem. And then we need to fill this skill gap. And I think that we need to upskill billions of people. And I think that then again, uh, we need to look also at technology. And, and I think that that's kind of like the only way that we're going to be able to upskill, you know, billions of people. Maybe there we also need to uh, move away from uh, just staring at like uh, full, uh, you know, degrees. I mean, if you look at like the university side and also uh, on the vocational side that we need to look at providing smaller upskilling packages, if you will, so that that you can look at what is 
actually needed in a particular job? Can we provide this at scale to, you know, more people and make them, you know, employable, uh, help them find jobs uh, that way? It boils down to kind of like doing things. When talking about education, how would you then characterize the distinction between education and learning? Samson, I believe that you've been exploring this area to some detail. So it's quite interesting. I was actually talking about this quite recently. Education can take place in school, but it it also takes place outside the school environment. Whereas learning, in any case, could happen within specific controlled environments. And learning is more thematic in terms of okay, I'm learning a skill, I'm learning how to skip, I'm learning how to run, whereas education is broad and, you know, it it speaks about issues of a meta level. Now, the World Economic Forum typically publishes every, I think, year, a future of work report. And it is estimated that by 2025, the number of jobs that will emerge will be within, you know, very 10 specific areas, such as data analysis and science, the artificial intelligence and machine learning, digital marketing, the Internet of Things, software and applications, development, information security analysis, and so forth. Now, if you look at some of these emerging fields and biotechnology as an example, as we've seen in recent times, you'd realize that to be able to fit into these professions and into these careers, there's a need for you to have some form of digital literacy. Now, if our education is not empowering young people today to be digitally literate, then we have a big problem because we're going to have a skills, we would continue to experience a skills gap like we've seen over the past few years. A number of employers these days will tell you, well, we have graduates coming out of our universities, but they don't have the skills to be able to do the work that we need them to do. So in terms of cooperation, I think one of the things that we really need to do and take actually seriously because I've had several people talk about this, but there's little action that has been put into really addressing the problem is to start thinking about, you know, redesigning our programs at the universities and not even just at the universities, but as basic as kindergarten, we really need to start thinking because the foundational level is what we need to be able to really upskill and learn quickly. In today's world, you need to have three skills. You need to be able to unlearn, you need to be able to learn, and you need to be able to relearn. If education is not empowering you to do these three things, then I'm sorry, what's the point of having that education in the first place? So most in-demand skills today, as we've seen, and in the future would be hard and a mix of hard and soft skills. And that would require you to learn you know, new things quickly or learn old things quickly And in some cases, relearn things that you've already learned. And this can only happen when we really look at the education system and calibrate it in a way that makes this possible. To continue on those relevant skills, Peter, you mentioned the public-private partnership. And obviously, companies have a vested interest in making sure that people get the right type of education. That also is, to some extent, a politicized topic. And uh, in your view, how does one put the companies, the private and the public side together in a meaningful way to create the type of environment that is needed? Yeah, I think uh, the starting point is that we need to put them together. Uh, So we need to have a dialogue. And I think that that is uh, super, super important because nobody else besides, you know, the companies, in this case, the businesses uh, actually know better than themselves, you know, what they need. 
And and I think that this is one disconnect that we see many times that there is not enough dialogue between then the education ministries and, and you know, uh, the people in charge on the public side. But yeah, I think that, I don't know if it's like oversimplifying it, but uh, again, it, it is about uh, bringing the people together and then uh, really looking at what we want to achieve. And typically people will find uh, common ground. And, and I think that uh, that's, that's kind of like my experience that uh, you just need to make that happen, you know, bring the people in charge uh, on, on both sides together and then looking at what we need to do to solve the problem. And I think that uh, everybody wants to solve that because, I mean, it, it is very important for like any nation that uh, you have talented and good workforce. And then, you know, that is what, of course, keeps the companies, the businesses, actually the public sector, of course, needs uh, good, you know, uh, um, good talent as well. Uh, so I think that uh, there is no kind of like conflict uh, there. And and we should be very, very careful not to let then uh, various ideologies and, and things kind of like come in between because uh, we, we all share a common goal, which is uh, we want to provide fantastic education. And then, you know, uh, after that, you'll get fantastic jobs and hopefully like a fantastic life. And Samson, from your perspective, would you have any thoughts on, you know, good models on how to bring the different parties together for an inclusive education? As we've seen in recent times, uh, there's a lot of blame game, maybe perhaps in, you know, this side in sub-Saharan Africa, where uh, you have private sector and, you know, people in corporations sitting on one side complaining all the time about university graduates. And you have, you know, the university also sitting somewhere and also complaining about private sector's uh, disinterest in engaging. Now, the situation is not the same when it comes to private institutions, because there are a number of private institutions that have made so much progress. And I'll give you an example. Ashasi University, which is located in Ghana, recently launched a master's program that is in partnership with ETH Zurich, right? And the program was designed paired with many stakeholders, students, private sector, and the two institutions. And they came up with a very unique model that is a representation of the kind of partnerships that we really seek and desire to see in our institutions. So I say that, look, let's have, you know, the the, the gatekeepers within these two different sectors, the policymakers and, and the people from industry. Let's have a representative or some form of representation to say, okay, Each country could either establish a council that has representation from both private and public organizations. So the policymaker, the private sector, public institutions come together, sit and come up with a roadmap for ensuring that we are able to upskill our graduates so that when we're churning our graduates out of our universities, they have the skills to be able to adapt to work and to evolve into careers and into pathways that would empower them and also liberate them from poverty. So Peter, the project that you work with, mm-hmm. Ambitious Africa, when hearing Samson's views here on how to bring about this change, how does that all reflect into the work that you are doing? And also, can you elaborate a bit about the size and scope yeah. and ambition for Ambitious yeah, ab- Africa? Ab- absolutely. And I think that it's exactly what we're doing. So I think that The problems uh, Samson described exactly uh, what we're trying to tackle. But uh, Ambitious Africa, as the name implies, uh, it's uh, very ambitious. So we want to transform 
Africa in Kalank the next five years. And uh, we want to do that by applying Kalank this Finnish and Nordic model, so really putting the young people in charge. And uh, it's not just saying that, but it has to be done. And I think that also, uh, if you look at where the talented young people are to be found, of course, universities, but universities are not always the fastest animals on the planet. So I think that uh, also when we talk with uh, universities and, and uh, other institutions, uh, you know, be it public or private institutions, I, I think that there's always uh, a bit of uh, slowness uh, built into the system and, and uh, sometimes for good reason, but many times for no reason at all. So I really believe that if we put uh, the young people in charge and what we're doing in Ambitious Africa is that our idea is that we have uh, people here in, in Finland, in Nordic countries, teaming up with uh, people then in uh, you know Ghana, in uh, in Zambia, in Zimbabwe, in South Africa, you know all over the African continent, and we create these local ambitious Africa teams, and then you know they uh, go there, stand in the middle of the ecosystem, they start looking around. So okay, like uh, what are the problems? Who are the people that we need to involve? And then you don't take no for an answer. So I think that uh, we need to break down a lot of these like hierarchies. And that's again why I think it's very important that. We look at education with a very like entrepreneurial mindset. So entrepreneurs are people who do things, and and that's uh, again taking uh, you know a few learnings from the entrepreneurial like playbook and startup playbook. That uh, you know like uh, let's identify the problem and then we figure out together. So we bring all the stakeholders, all the people we need together. You know, same room, and then we start like looking at okay, this is what we need to be doing, and we break up this big problem into, you know, smaller addressable pieces. And uh, if you then look at like Ambitious Africa, so uh, we have a focus on education, entrepreneurship and entertainment. So we talk about like the three E's and education is like an obvious one. So that's really the foundation. But uh, I always say that without then, you know, having this entrepreneurial mindset, so actually doing things, then the education is not like uh, very useful. So we need education, we need to have an entrepreneurial mindset and attitude. And then the entertainment piece is important. So, of course, we should have fun while we're doing this. Samson, with your vast experience now from grassroots education, advocation and working with the World Economic Forum, how does this recipe that uh, Peter just described, how do you see that that would sink in the African context? I think it's a very brilliant uh, strategy and I'm really excited to learn about Ambitious Africa. And I think it's something that I'm going to dig in you know, further. I want to say that I admire the approach to, to addressing this challenge you know, by leveraging multiple you know, strategies like education, entertainment. And it is very useful to start thinking out of the box around how we approach some of these things and also tapping into their culture, right? Young people today are on TikTok. People on Instagram reels and all of that. And this is like a culture that is growing massively on a daily basis. There's one challenge or the other on Instagram or on TikTok. Now, leveraging such a strategy to get more young people to understand the need for them to build their skills, the need for them to acquire hard and soft skills is very important because then you're taking the conversation to the young people and you're empowering them. Well, that brings us to the end of this crucial and very enlightening discussion. Samson and Peter, thank you so much for your insights and solutions that you offered here today. It's really been a pleasure talking with both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform 
and stay tuned for more discussions on pressing issues that we all must care about. I'm your host Atte Palomäki and today we went beyond business. <laughs>